As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. In the bond space right now, it is always important to check in with Greg Peters. He's the co-CIO at Pigeon Fixed Income and Farmore, has a mantle at home with all sorts of investment managers of the year in fixed income. Greg, thank you for joining us. Just as you rewrite the 1231 outlook for PGM, you do this on March 31. What do you adjust to look forward within a fixed income portfolio? Yeah, so I think what you adjust um, is the probability of a recession. So we were actually reasonably optimistic that uh, the Fed could achieve a soft landing. That's still a possibility, Tom, for sure. But I think the probability of a uh, recession is much higher today, just given uh, what's occurring in the banking space. So, you know, I think the theme that continues from last year into this year is one of uncertainty. You basically have a set of, you know, scenarios and bimodal, trimodal type of outcomes. Uh, it makes it a very difficult space to navigate. Um, and I think as a consequence, you'll see volatility quite high, which actually creates opportunities at the same time. So it's one of these things with overall macro pictures cloudy, but mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot of opportunities within the space. Greg Peters, what Global Wall Street wants to know from you, and I guess it's PGM in general, but let's go to Greg Peters. What's the new duration forward? I mean, what point on the maturity curve is a comfortable place to be given endless algebraic epsilon, given the reality of uncertainty? Well, so, you, you know, it is contingent on your outlook, of course, but I do believe that uh, uh, rates are too high over the medium to long term. Uh, uh, that will, you know, be remedied uh, over time. Effectively, if you're worried about a recession, then add, uh, adding duration, having risk out the curve via duration is a very good place to be. And the question you have to ask yourself as an investor is, do you think the 10-year yield will be this called 3.5% five years forward, three years forward? Um, and if the answer is no, I think it will be lower than, uh, uh, you know, whether the volatility uh, and add duration. So what do you make, Greg, if you think that rates are going to be longer, uh, higher for, or rather I should say, if you think that rates are going to be lower for a longer period of time, then what is the Fed getting wrong? How do you push back against a Federal Reserve that keeps saying we're going to keep rates elevated and we see inflation as a serious concern? Yeah, but inflation is a serious concern. So one big F the other. So in order to get you know, rates lower over time, 
central banks to be viewed as inflation fighters. If they lose that credibility, then then rates will just naturally rise. So one begets the other, Lisa. And so it's really critical for the Fed and other central banks uh, to be viewed as vigilant around inflation because credibility uh, is based off that. And if central banks lose that credibility, they lose the ability to actually kind of manage the yield curve, if you would. So so it's really important to get it right over the near term. And if anything, err on the side of, uh, you know, reducing, eliminating inflation in the system. I think that's uh, job number one. Okay, so given that, do you think that rates are too high on the longer end or on the shorter end? In other words, do you think that this market has been overly aggressive with pricing out rate hikes and basically saying to the Fed, you're done, and oh yeah, you're going to cut rates by almost 100 basis points in the next 12 months? I do. I think the markets are way too optimistic around the notion of rate cuts. Uh, To me, uh, I don't see that playing out precisely because inflation remains quite high. So I don't see the scope for central banks, namely the Fed here, uh, cutting rates in the manner that uh, the markets are suggesting. So uh, that seems off to me, quite frankly, um, uh, and we're leaning against that notion. So we don't necessarily see uh, uh, the rate cuts being priced into the market coming to fruition. So so that's one area of the market that we think um, is completely off. So based on what you're saying, which is that short-end rates could stay high and even be much higher, and long-term rates could fall much lower, we're talking about a really substantial inverted yield curve, perhaps even more than 100 basis points that we saw earlier this year. Is that correct, Greg? Yeah, so I think that is the path forward. Um, unless you really get this um, you know, harsh recession with uh, inflation coming down pretty rapidly, uh, then I expect the yield curve to remain inverted uh, and continue to get even more inverted. So um, I still have this uh, triple-digit uh, target between twos to tens. I think that's uh, where uh, where we wow. land, uh, and that's what we're forecasting. Well, I, I got four questions, Greg, but no time for it. Where's the 10-year yield a year from now uh, off of that triple-digit uh, inverted curve? I think there's a very good chance that, uh, you, you know, the 10-year just kind of moves around, you know, plus or minus uh, 20 basis points. So I don't see at this point in time, given the data, and right. you guys mentioned how we're so data-dependent, so it makes it hard to forecast. But I don't really see a radical shift over the near term, 12 months, um, but on the 10-year part of the curve, unless you get a real change uh, uh, in the economy, including inflation. So those are the big caveats, of course. Greg Peters, thank you so much with PGM and uh, PGM Fixed Income. He is with Renaissance Macro. He is aware we've moved from an Atlanta GDP now number of 3.x percent, under 2% as well, the world turning against the optimism of Neil Dutta. Neil Dutta, do you like the Atlanta GDP now statistic? Is it a value? Oh, of course it's a value, Tom. Um, but uh, like anything, uh, your assumptions uh, drive your conclusions. And uh, the Atlanta Fed uh, number had a sharp downward revision yesterday because of the ISM manufacturing PMI. Um, now, the ISM manufacturing PMI, last I checked, doesn't formally get booked into the uh, GDP calculation. So it's important to remember that the uh, GDP now estimate is not a pure GDP uh, sort of bean counting exercise. Um, 
What does go into GDP, by the way, is unit auto sales. And auto sales came in a little bit better than expected in March. Uh, and that tells me that uh, motor vehicles, uh, consumption on motor vehicles will be a significant boost to, to first quarter GDP. Uh, and remember that because of the ISM number, the Atlanta Fed has you know, had a sharp down revision to their durable goods uh, consumption estimates uh, for Q1. So, uh, you know, it's important to kind of understand how these numbers work as opposed to just sort of mm-hmm. blindly saying, look, it's down. You know, that's not right. It's not it's not that easy. Well, we appreciate the analysis of it versus it's down or it's up as well. What is the state of the American consumer now? There's so many cross currents, many of us witnessing packed airplanes, buoyant travel, and yet real worry about different deciles of the American uh, people. What is the state of that consumer? Well, I think the most important thing is that real incomes have been climbing. And ultimately, that is going to plant the seeds of future consumer spending. To me, it's really that straightforward. Uh, and I expect real consumer spending, uh, real incomes to continue climbing into the second quarter. Uh, remember, natural gas prices have come down. That's going to bleed into household utility bills over the second quarter. Given the state of the labor market, which is still okay, um, that's going to mean stronger real income growth uh, in the second quarter, which will in turn support uh, real consumer spending. Um, So I know there's a lot of angst around the consumer. And, um, you know, we've gone from uh, kind of talking about weird seasonal adjustment factors. Maybe it was the warm weather. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, when you look at consumer spending relative to where it was, uh, you know, trending for the pandemic, it's off the charts. Uh, so I think the bears still have a lot of explaining to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't really think the consumer is about to uh, fall off the cliff here. Well, Neil, we've got to make note here. You've been dead on about the lack of recession and the resiliency of the American consumer. The zeitgeist right now, Neil Dutta, as you know, off Adam Tooze's essay in the Financial Times is a new respect for nominal GDP, which is that real GDP with a movable dynamic of inflation overlaid on top of it. Now, you've got nominal Nominal GDP, you've got incomes, whether real or top line, and then it boosts right into corporate revenues as well, maybe giving us a buoyant stock market. What does nominal GDP do over the next nine months? I think the underlying trend of nominal growth is around five to six percent, which makes, you know, these sort of calls that basically overlay like corporate earnings over on the ISM sort of pointless. I mean, um, it's all in the market. I mean, the, the sort of earnings recession that the bears have kind of been talking about. I mean, to me, it's very difficult to get a, a steeper earnings recession from this at this point because nominal incomes are running, uh, nominal growth is running five to six percent. Um, at the same time, keep in mind that the dollar is off about six and a half percent over the last um, six months or so. Uh, that's also a tailwind for corporate earnings, and importantly, in my world, uh, it's a, it's a tailwind for real export activity over the next year. So. Um, a lot of what's traded in the markets are, you know, large multinationals that do a lot of business overseas. And if the global economy is looking a bit better than it did last year, which I think is really, frankly, undeniable, mm-hmm. um, then uh, then that's going to that's going to bleed into uh, to corporate earnings, which should support, uh, you know, U.S. equity prices. Now, Dada, one more question. We better run off to Brussels here in a historic moment for uh, Europe. But first for to you uh, finally here on the Fed Derby. 
all of the gloom that's out there, the Fed has to adapt in a responsible, data-dependent way. What data matters for them on the road to May 3rd? Well, I mean, this is going to sound you know, pretty obvious, I think. But to me, it's, it's employment and inflation. And remember, we only get one jobs number between now and the May meeting. And I think that's really not enough time for them to assess the fallout from what we saw uh, in the middle of March with the, the banking stresses that, that flared up. Um, now, that being said, the consensus and the Fed are assuming a sudden stop in the economy. Recession is imminent. Uh, we're about to fall off the cliff. I mean, these are the sort of things that you hear about um, you know, from the consensus economics community. I utterly reject that view. Uh, I think the economy is not collapsing. We're probably growing uh, at potential. Uh, and that's going to mean that the unemployment rate is not going to rise in a way that everyone mm -hmm. expects. And that ultimately leaves inflation, I think, uh, unresolved, frankly. <laughs> and uh, that's right. why I think, um, you know, give it till June. We get a couple more jobs numbers at that point. We'll see that, you know, we're still cranking mm -hmm. out a decent number of jobs. And uh, ultimately, I think that's going to mean the next Fed move will be a hike. Neil Dutta, thank you so much for joining us. Too brief a visit this morning. He is with Renaissance Macro Research. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. She's been a resilient bull. Lean forward and listen to Barbara Reinhardt of Voya Investment Management. Are you still bullish after the move off of October? We are. We're still bullish because we believe that the SVB banking crisis really gave the central banks an opportunity to reassess. They have muscle memory on what a systemic crisis looks like. While the Fed raised rates at its last meeting, we think this gives it an opportunity to slow down some of its hawkishness. Mm -hmm. We're only talking about 50 billion basis points hike just a month ago. Uh, they only did 25, and you're seeing some relief on inflation. Jamie Dimon in his letter this morning, and I've just skimmed through it, folks. We're already, you know, I'll go and read the whole thing tonight uh, over a beverage of my choice. Mr. Dimon says maybe with SVB, we have some form of, and these are my own words, paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. How do you shift your equity investment given the shock that we had systemically? It may seem peculiar, but you know what? The big rally off of the bottom, it was participated on very strongly by the international equity markets. So developed international, Europe, and emerging markets were some of the big gainers off of that bottom of the October low. But what we saw in March, we think is an important shift. The U.S. outperformed the rest of the world, and pretty strongly. So we think that the 700 basis points of the international markets outperformance of the U.S. over the past year is largely behind us, and we think it's going to be the U.S. that's going to be the leader going forward. 
Barbara, what data are you looking at that suggests that the U.S. is doing so much better than other nations? And I ask this because George Cervellos over at Deutsche Bank put out a note saying that European wages are outpacing those in the U.S. for the first time in more than a decade. Right. Well, that's the thing is it gives the opportunity, the slowing inflation scenario that you have in the U.S. gives the central bank the opportunity to slow their rate hikes, even possibly pause um, at their next meeting. And that means that the U.S. is likely to be one of those first in to fight inflation and one of the first ones also to start pausing and then potentially cutting sometime in the next year. Remember, that first rate pause, when the Fed pauses, there's usually a very big countertrend rally in equities. You have that also coincidence with very high cash levels at mutual funds and also somewhat depressed sentiment. And it gives a very important kind of push forward for equities, likely onto new highs. Barbara, I absolutely love how you troll all the bears out there, and successfully, because frankly, uh, you have been right. Basically saying, what's been the biggest pain trade since last October? The answer is being short stocks with long cash. What do you think uh, is going to be the leadership here? Is it going to continue to be tech on the heels of that pause, or is it going to be broad-based? Is this really something more holistic and longer-lasting? Look, for sure, there are parts of the market that are more affected by SVB than others, right? There's going to be a continued tightening of credit conditions. That affects U.S small caps, U.S. mid caps, much more than it does large caps. But I would say they've been so beaten down at this point, you're likely to see a broadening out of the equity market, and it's going to broaden out from leadership, not only from U.S. growth, but take some of the other parts of the market, likely the lower cap size along with it. I think it's difficult to mount a sustainable rally in the early cyclicals at this point. But we do think that it's likely indeed to have a very much um, bigger, broader base in terms of cap size. I, I want to address this from Jamie Dimon's letter released an hour ago. I assume you did not get an advanced copy. No, I did not. There's a banking numbers. <laughs> it's a joke, folks. There's a banking numbers as well. And down at the bottom, it was a, it was the next Secretary of Treasury talking about policy, <laughs> diplomacy, and that. And in the middle, he says there are storm clouds ahead because of the shock we had from SVB, deposit flows, and things we maybe we don't know right now. Mm-hmm. How do you stay a bull? How do you stay in the market? on a Friday afternoon if Mr. Diamond and you suggest there are storm clouds ahead? There are always storm clouds ahead, right? You've had this expansion going for quite some time in the U.S. If you count that the the COVID reset and the COVID uh, recession that we had wasn't necessarily a classic business cycle Uh, contraction. So yes, we're further along in the cycle, but there's always storm clouds ahead. When you have a 500 basis point tightening in in, um, rates like you've had from the Fed over the past year, things start to break. We've had things breaking for over a year. However, if you do not believe that a recession is upon us in the next six months, and we do not think that there is, Mm -hmm. equity markets tend to do very well in the year up to a recession. The raging uh, uh, theme over the weekend, Adam Tooze leading the debate in the FT, is the power of nominal GDP. Mm-hmm. Does an inflation-juiced nominal GDP mean a surprise in revenue growth for American corporations? Well, it makes everybody feel better to have faster GDP yes. growth, right? The margin compression story is a real concern, of course, in the U.S., but we do believe that there's enough that the Fed's <coughs> going to be able to pause, that they've done enough to get inflation under control and you start to see it. You had a, a much better core PCE number that was just released. And if you have... And in, and in South Korea today, we saw yeah. disinflation there as well. Exactly. So it could be a world that's going to be awash in slowing inflation, yeah. at least through the second quarter of this year. 
What we're going to do here, folks, is through all of 2023, we're going to put Bramo and Reinhardt on the desk <laughs> together here to have a, a dueling <laughs> debate on the tone of our economic polity uh, moving forward. Barbara Reinhardt is with Voya Investment uh, Management. This morning, where our heads are spinning, home and away. It's the name of his new Substack effort. Richard Haas joins us on the home and the way. Richard, let's go to the away first. And the way is what you, when you were at Oberlin a million years ago, you were falling asleep on a 2 p.m. Thursday <laughs> afternoon, and somebody said, Finland will forever remain neutral. And here you and I are looking at Finland to enter NATO. How did we get here? Tom, if you had asked me that when I was in college, I would have said the Cold War was permanent. Uh, so much has happened uh, that I didn't quite uh, anticipate. I think this is part of the unintended consequence of Mr. Putin's war. Uh, people thought after the Cold War ended, NATO lacked a, a, a rationale. Its, one, its old rationale has come back on stilts. And the fact that you know Finland is in NATO, Sweden's moving in that direction. Again, this is what Mr. Putin has wrought. We never could have done it, shall we say, without him. When I look at the map, and I don't have it in front of me, folks. You know, I flunked Finnish geography. But if you come down to the bottom near Helsinki and you move over to the east, NATO is not all that far from St. Petersburg, is it? It's remarkable. We worried about Ukraine being close. Condoleezza Rice, uh, Bill, uh, Robert Gates, and others pushing back on Ukraine and NATO. My word, NATO to St. Petersburg now is a quick ride, Ambassador, isn't it? That, and you've also got far more uh, border for Russia to worry about. Uh, again, strategically, this makes zero sense. I think what it shows from Putin's point of view, either he didn't see this happening, or if he did, he didn't much care, Tom. He puts, he's put so much of an emphasis on Ukraine. He's in some ways rolled the dice. His own presidency depends upon it. That my guess is whatever cost he has to pay, whether it's manpower, economically, strategically, he's prepared to pay because he's put at risk his own political future, and the future of authoritarian Russia. Chris, thank you for the headline across the Bloomberg terminal. Finland officially joins NATO, is 31st member. Maria Tadeo is in Brussels and will be looking for ceremony there, I believe, in the next hour. Let us turn home of your home and away substack effort. Retired Ambassador Haas here from the Council on Foreign Relations. The home event, well, I've got to go down Fifth Avenue, past Trump Tower, and maybe down into Center Street as well. Your comments on the bills and the obligations, the obligations, Richard, that President Trump has to this process of indictment and arraignment. Well, Tom, you know, it's more than an obligation to, to follow the law. Obligations are things you should do, but don't have to do. And Donald Trump has been a serial violator uh, of obligations. Uh, you know, the idea of norms, the peaceful transfer of political power, the most basic defining norm of American democracy. He, he, he violated that. Civility, he violates on a daily uh, basis. His signaling about political violence, another violation. The idea of putting country before party or person. I would say in many ways his whole career is a violation of that obligation. The law, though, is something else, and we have a system for dealing with it. That's why we have courts and the like. Obligations, though, are something citizens have to insist upon, and that brings it all back to the ballot box. He could well be the Republican nominee. I think what this indictment has 
done in some ways is frozen the other Republican candidates. It increases the odds Donald Trump is the Republican nominee. And let's be brutally honest, if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, Tom, he's one of the two most likely people to be the next next president of the United States. Richard Haas, I, I don't want to be inflammatory here, and I want to take the arc up to 1860. It can be Kansas, Nebraska, and the rest. But there's a mood there now of disunion, of a nation not that would break up. I just don't want to go there. But of this absolute polarization we see with the president, former president's poll ratings and such. With your people at CFR, how close are we to a dialogue of disunion, if not outright disunion? I'm not worried about formal disunion. I agree with you, Tom. But we already have very separate Americas, the red versus blue. Look at life expectancy, the differences between red and, and blue states. You look at, you know, people now are really separated by geography, by religion, by what cable shows they watch. That really worries me that increasingly America, which is a country founded on ideas, we no longer have a common set of ideas. It's one of the many prices we pay for not teaching civics in our schools. We're not requiring uh, civics. I'm not worried about a civil war, Tom, but I am worried about something else. You, you, you were teasing me about my ambassadorial hat. I was the U.S. envoy to Northern Ireland. This spring, we marked 25 years since the so-called mm -hmm. troubles, the political and violence in Northern Ireland pretty much came to an end. I worry about an American version of the troubles where we could have fairly frequent decentralized right. political violence in this gun-loaded country of ours. That is not something we can dismiss. How would the troubles of Ireland been different? And of course, this is with a wonderful Irish movie that was Oscar worthy this year. How would the troubles, Richard Haas, have been different if we'd had Twitter at the time? <laughs> would have been much worse. What Twitter does is you know, it's called social media, Tom. It's not serious media. It's not factual media. So Twitter allows people to traffic in misinformation or selective information. That's what social media does. And it's really dangerous. It reinforces the tribalism of any society. And, you know, we, our democracy is two and a half centuries old. We're celebrating the Declaration of Independence in three years. It's 250th anniversary. We were not made in some ways for the age of social media. I, I look where we are, Richard Haas, and of course the import today, and a, a toggle switch here, a president that will go to arraignment, be peaceful, quiet, but he speaks tonight from Mar-a-Lago. What would you want to hear from President Trump tonight from Mar-a-Lago? Look, what I would want to hear him do is put country first, to talk about the importance of the law, the legal process, that he'll respect it, not to attack judges, not mm -hmm. to attack prosecutors. To basically, this, you know, part of what makes America America is, is the rule of law. Mm -hmm. It's basic, Tom, for all the business people watching your show. This is a, it's the oxygen of American society. What I would like to see Donald Trump do is respect the rule of law. Uh, Richard, to f finish up here, let's come full circle here as we looked away and then home. The center tendency of 2022 was a shock of February in Vladimir Putin. He has to be thunderstruck today at not only what he sees in the United States and the events on the island of Manhattan, but what he sees in Finland as well. How would you presume someone so cloistered in the Kremlin, how would you presume he will respond to these new 2023 shocks? 
obviously unhappy about Finland, but he will be in some ways feeling good about events here. It reinforces his sense, Tom, that time is on his side, that the United States and European support for Ukraine is is potentially is, is weak. It will cause Putin to dig in his heels. You had Leslie uh, Benjamin talking about it before. A lot of our allies are uneasy about a return of Trump or Trumpism and all that means. But for someone like Putin, for Xi Jinping, for some others in the Middle East, they will welcome the possibility of our going uh, what, yeah. back to the future here. I said this uh, a couple years ago, folks. Richard Haas, The World was the book of the summer. It was the summer book you threw at an older child and said, shut up and read this. And the Bill of Obligations follows uh, right behind it. It's first class on civics needed in America. Richard Haas is with the Council on Foreign Relations, and his Substack effort is home in a way. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Lisa, how'd your bracket work out? I think I failed. March Madness took over in a very different way, considering the past couple of weeks and everything we've been dealing with, uh, Tom. Feel better, Lisa. Your bracket was better than my bracket. We have a wonderful annual ritual here at Bloomberg Within Brackets, which is various worthies commit to charity and support, and there's always a winner. It's something to do with a parquet floor. Steve Pagliuco, senior advisor at Bain Capital, co-owner of the Boston Celtics. Mr. Pagliuca was the winner of the Bloomberg Brackets for a cause. He correctly, how the hell did he do this? He picked UConn to win March Madness. The Huskies dazzled 76 to 59 in a win over San Diego State. And of course, of $1 million Brackets for a cause pot will go to Mr. Pagliuca's charity, Reform Alliance, a charity helping people get out of prison and move on to constructive uh, jobs. I do have to note here in a careful review, because we provide transparency here at Bloomberg, we went from Grower to Paliuka, a Peter Grower, Lisa, Peter Grower, uh, came in here um, uh, underperforming, I guess is how we'll constructively put that. Bill Ackman, Jay Clayton together, that's the first time they've ever been uh, together underperforming, as they say, dazzling up higher. Cliff Asnes, uh, respectable one. Michael Bloomberg, Lisa, did better than good. And we noticed Jonathan Gray at Blackstone, among others, 
all aced out by Steve Pagliuca. Steve, what in the ether did you do to win this bracket? What did you see? Is it like the day-to-day grind of the Celtics means that you've got it all figured out? I wish that was the case. I, I think I was just lucky and uh, happy to have the money go to the Reform Alliance. As you said, it's an amazing uh, charity set up by uh, Robert Kraft and uh, Michael Rubin uh, to get prisoners work. And we have 4 million uh, people on parole and, and, and in the system and really needs to be reformed and, and, and rehab. So um, I'm very mm-hmm. grateful to Bloomberg and, and grateful to the basketball gods that uh, helped me this year. The basketball gods gave us as well, and I'm, I'm not up to speed on this, Steve, and if I'm out of turn, say so. Boy, did the women de- de- deliver attorney this year. It seemed to be a real turning point where America paid attention in a new way to women's NCAA basketball. Absolutely. I think uh, all the women's sports are getting more attention. Uh, people love to watch sports, and the level of competition was probably the best ever in the women's tournament. The woman Clark was, was just, just electric out there. Fantastic final. Uh, Steve, an important day for all of global Wall Street and particularly American Wall Street. James Diamond and team at J.P. Morgan publish a letter. They speak there of the storm clouds to come. This is Mr. Diamond and his team looking at SVB and the banking crisis. How do the storm clouds look from Boston this morning? Well, as you know, Tom, we've talked about this before. Um, uh, lots of, lots of uh, tough dynamics right now. The war in Ukraine, oil prices going up. Uh, interest rates uh, gapping up, which has caused some of these problems. So, uh, you know, we, we were definitely heading into murky waters. Um, the good news is there's still a lot of jobs out there. Um, technology is coming back. Biotech is, is growing. So we have some pockets of good things happening. But uh, we're in the midst of a correction where we basically had a 10-year kind of growth bubble based on cheap money. And it's going to be painful to come out of that. What's the distinction, Steve, between a credit crunch and just credit tightening, as many people see ongoing right now? Well, a credit crunch would be just a total lack of liquidity. And and I think right now you're just seeing tightening. And again, we're getting back to normalized interest rates. Uh, For most of my career, uh, interest rates have been four and a half to five percent. Only in the last 12 or 13 years have they gapped down. So and that cheap money has, uh, has, has brought a lot of prosperity, but now we're kind of paying the price for having that long time cheap money. But we're seeing a tightening now. I, I don't think we're seeing a crunch. The banks of JP Given Morgan, that, Bank of America, were very well capitalized today. Which is the reason why a lot of people are saying they can still take out credit cards, they can still take out loans, especially if they have good credit. And banks are continuing to lend to businesses that continue to hire in a, a major way. As an investor, does this make debt look much more valuable than even the equity side of the balance sheet as an investor, simply because they can pay back their debts, but perhaps equity needs a reevaluation? Well, again, it's, it's, to me, I step back, it's, it's basically based on the price you pay for the asset. Um, so, so we've been in periods in private equity where debt levels are you know, 10% equity, 90% debt. Those days are gone. Uh, deals are much more conservatively financed. So the debt burden is not as high these days. These are 60% debt, 50% debt is common in today's structures. Uh, debt is still available for good deals. And uh, good deals have repriced, so you're now seeing some opportunities in the tech sector and other companies that are back down to reasonable valuations. 
Based on what you're seeing in the day-to-day of the companies that you work with and that you see and the fans that go in droves to all of the games and continue to spend money, do you feel like people who are calling for a recession are perhaps misguided, or do you think that you are seeing a real softening that's borne out by empirical data? We have not seen the empirical data yet showing uh, a dramatic softening. Um, Airlines are still full. uh, Restaurants are still full. Uh, so we've not seen that in, in our in our companies. Uh, you know, it, it, it can be to come, especially with ex- the expensive money out there and a little pullback in the credit markets. But but right now, um, consumers are still out there, and uh, and we haven't seen highly highly negative data. Uh, I'm worried about the the recent oil price increase. You know that that is going to increase inflation, and is that going to bring us even higher interest rates? But but right now we're I think in an uncertain period, maybe heading towards a recession, but hopefully a soft landing. Uh, Steve, I got to go back a number of days here. The basic, the, the the basic idea here, of what the Celtics did to the Bucks. I mean, this is on the edge of what UConn did throughout this entire tournament. Are the Celtics destined this year, like University of Connecticut? I certainly hope so. We we have a great uh, bunch of players, uh, uh, really great on and off the court, and they really pulled together and had, had a fantastic game against Milwaukee. But Milwaukee's a great team, um, so. As they say in the in the in the in the in the, in the kind of hundred year sports analogy, you've got to take one one game at a time, and that's what they're doing, having fun together, and, and hopefully winning out the rest of the season and doing great in the playoffs. So we're excited. We're really excited for the prospects. Steve Pelioka there uh, with a charity of Robert Kraft of the New England Patriots here, as he is the winner of our bracket this year. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.